Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books. This month I've shared a pot of tea and delicious homemade flapjack with this month's guest, Lissa Evans. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. Delighted that our cafe has reopened and that you can eat our flapjacks again. <laughs> um, as ever, I'll give you the heads up on what's just been published and what to look out for over the next month. And my backlisted choice is a folio edition of an 18th century diary with recipes, possibly a fraud, with a mystery which could be solved by US servicemen from World War Two. Tim, it's time for what to be currently reading. So why don't you go first? Because basically I've been reading Lisa Evans for obvious reasons. Right. Well, um, the first book I'm going to talk about uh, is I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, which I've ne- I'd never read her before. Um, and uh, I thought it was about time I did. It's Really, a, it's a non-fiction, so it's a, her autobiography, but it's about growing up uh, black in the Deep South in 1930s America, um, which was extremely tough. And it gives you some idea, really, of why 90 years on, Black Lives Matter is, feels so visceral in the US right now. Um, it's not one of those biographies that say, look at me, look at me, I'm, aren't I clever? It's, it's not like that at all. And it reads like a story, which I think is one of the great things about it, um, like the best non-fiction does. So that's the, that's the first one I want so to So it isn't like a misery memoir? It's no, more... it's not like that. Okay. It's, 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 uh, but it is an astonishing read, and it is, it is quite tough. Uh, so not for the light-hearted. Um, the second book I'm just going to talk about is Small Pleasures. It's by Claire Chambers. It's set in the mm. 1950s in suburban Kent. It's about Jean, who's a local newspaper reporter, who lives a fairly humdrum existence of very small pleasures with her rather demanding mother. She's asked to investigate the story of a woman who claims to have produced a baby through pathogenesis, (laughs) uh, which to you and I means a virgin birth. Um, It's a beautifully told story, uh, and it's also an unlikely love story. So it's uh, it does quite a few things, and it's a, it's a really really well done piece of work. I saw that the Guardian were doing hottest picks for summer reads, and that book kept coming up time and again for different people choosing it. The so two books that I'm that I'm halfway through, because you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always got my nose in a couple <laughs> of different books. Um, one is Hamlet, which we have mentioned before, by Maggie O'Farrell, the one that won all the prizes over the last year. Hamlet of the title is the son of Agnes and William Shakespeare. Um, why she decides to call her Agnes? Well, we all know her as Anne, Anne Hathaway. But anyway, uh, the plague has arrived in Stratford-upon-Avon um, with consequences. So it's a complex story. It's told from different angles. Um, it's got a big emotional heft, this book. But I'm only halfway through, so uh, I won't tell you much more about because lots of spoilers in this. So I won't tell you what I think going it's to quite a Marmite book. Ah, OK. All right. Well, I'm enjoying it so far. I've thought, but, I'm only, but as I say, I'm only halfway, so... Uh, you never know quite what I'm going to, going to ha- what conclusion I'm going to draw by the <laughs> by the end of it. Um, the other book I was going to talk about, an extra pair of hands by Kate Moss. Ah, yes. Um, now Kate, of course, has been on our been on our program not that not that long ago. It's non-fiction. It's to, to start with. It's um, her mother-in-law and her parents both came 
all three of them came to live with the, with her family in her house near Chichester. It's about what what looking after old people is like, really. I suppose it's about it's about what um, what possibly comes to a lot of us in our lives, looking after our, our elderly parents. So it's it's in part it's, you know it's it's sad because because uh, well things happen with it when you're very old. Um, but it's also quite uplift- it's very uplifting as well. So uh, I, I would recommend that actually. But I'm only halfway. I think hilariously, through. she and Granny Rosie were on the cover of something this week. So Granny Rosie is now a cover girl uh, at the grand old age of ninety three or something. Goodness, right. Wonderful. So when Kate came on the, came on the radio program, uh, she did talk about this book uh, a bit. An extra pair of hands. So that's definitely worth a read. Great. Well, apart from Lissa. Well, including Lisa, actually, to kick off with. John, you, our, our producer, John, obviously is here, who listens to Audible uh, a listeners. lot. <laughs> um, the audiobook of Wed Wabbit is read by Lisa herself, and you'd absolutely love it. It is so funny. Um, so I reread Crooked Heart, bought Old Baggage, uh, finished with V for Victory, which I recommend. I have recommended it to book groups, to my family who will share the humour. It's just great. And I'm also reading our guest Sue Wallman's Desert Island book from last month, Will Stores the Science of Storytelling, which is actually really about life and being human and mad things like we always create stories because we have things like toys when you're little that you know that one toy will know it's not loved as much as your bear and you feel guilty about it or if a chair trips you up you want to punch the chair because it's as if it's deliberately done it to you as you know tim i'm now discovering all the vera stanhopes by anne cleave so i'm whipping through that as well there are quite a few of those aren't there there are quite a few which is (laughs) wonderful but i've just finished the darkest evening and now it's time for our interview Made by the people of Petersfield, this is Shine Radio. So we're joined this month by Lissa Evans. She's both a writer, but also a television director and producer. Um, Father Ted is one of her, among many others, one of her great successes. She's also a doctor, a stand-up, and a writer not just of novels, but of children's books as well. She's also had one of her books made into a film. The book was called Their Finest Hour and a Half, the film is called Their Finest, which was had Gemma Arterton and Bill Nighy in, amongst others. Her latest book is called V for Victory, which comes out later this month in paperback. It features characters that appeared in two previous novels, Crooked Heart and Old Baggage. So the uh, question is whether we'd call that a trilogy, but I think it probably is. We'll call it... I, I tend to say a loose trilogy. A loose trilogy. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. A loose trilogy. A capacious trilogy. <laughs> um, Lisa, I'm so thrilled that you agreed to come and chat to us. It's wonderful. Um, I first came across Lisa on Backlisted, which is my favourite podcast that obviously has nothing to do with our section of this (laughs) podcast whatsoever. So to kick off in school exam style, S-K-O-O-L, so there's a clue for you there. Yes. So I'm going to make this sound like an exam questioner. So what do Edith Wharton and Charles Dickens to do with Ronald Searle and the works of Lissa Evans? Lissa Evans. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been a guest on Backlisted. This is the clue, isn't it? This is what you're saying. Yes, I, I, I was the first ever guest on Backlisted. I'm the original guest TM. And, um, <laughs> and they get me back whenever, frankly, they've got a gap. <laughs> Because no, no. I'll talk about nearly anything, including at one point hosting the 
Proust Christmas special, which was sprung on me as a laugh, I think, because obviously I'd never read a word of Proust when I took on the house. And then uh, then I had. I, I managed two, two, two volumes and a lot of books around it as well. well so, the second um, one's quite short, isn't it? It's the first one that's the real didn't kicker. feel short. I have to <laughs> say. <laughs> Lisa read it in the original French. <laughs> no. I'll tell you why I have made the link. Okay, okay. Um, and interesting, I know Tim wants to ask you about names, so that was going to be one bit, but okay. I'll leave that. But the rest was how you have managed to have these extreme characters verging on caricature, caricature, and I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean that in a really good way, like Jane Austen also has some that are near caricature. Yeah. Um, but also your children's writing you're um able to have a children's voice that isn't patronizing but also utterly adult the humor that's completely juxtaposed with something that makes you feel very sad that to me you could be really laughing at dickens zone and then suddenly oh it's poignant well there's a comparison that i can't possibly justify well i mean it would be wonderful obviously to be compared to dickens but i'm not comparable to dickens my my palate my palate is an enormous is enormously smaller and um but i do range between characters and i range between classes which i suppose in 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 the way that he does and i love that breadth i love i love being able to to choose different milieu and different different characters, different um, generations. I don't my 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 group of characters tends to be quite broad. Well, certainly this is London based. Yes, and vivid. You vivid. know, really, mm. where the bits that are meant to be nasty are truly shocking. Uh, it, you know, I feel like I was there. Oh, I'm going to hand over to Tim for the other bit of the Dickens. Well, I, I was going to talk about not just the, the, the London London focus yes. the, and the multi-generational idea that you, you write about, about young people and about old people and about people in between, and you write about, with equal um, capacity about all of them. But also the names. <laughs> I think one of my favourites is Vera Sedge, who's, <laughs> who's one, of the, one of the key characters in, in, in all three books. Sorry, not all three, the last two anyway. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, although she changes her name uh, to Marjorie Overs, yes, but uh, again, is a wonderful name. But I, I think um, you also enjoyed enjoyed making these names up. I love, I love making them up, and often the first name I, I choose is the right one. So Vera said was Vera said right from the beginning. The minor characters' names I often change. I think her mum's name changed a few times, and in fact, I can't can't remember what it is offhand. But but Noel, the other main character, Matty Simpkin, Noel Baggage, those all leapt onto the page and and i know when they're right but the book i'm i'm writing at the moment i've, I've changed one of the lead characters names four times so far and i have to wait till it sits sits correctly on the page um my favorite my favorite ever uh character's name was in their finest hour and a half there's a pompous actor called ambrose hilliard and he was very nearly uh, Bevis Hilliard and then I was walking through Waterstones one day and I, I you know you imagine a cartoon somebody's eyes going die, 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 because there was a book by somebody called Bevis Hilliard and I had no idea he even existed so there we go uh, so sometimes they have to change Ambrose is perfect though, Ambrose, Ambrose yes I'm very proud of Ambrose and you I mean you write a lot about in the books about wartime Britain um, both in the, their cricket heart and um, FIFA victory and of course their finest hour and a half um is there something about wartime britain that that really 
really interests you? It's, it's, yes. I mean, when I was about 12 or 13, my dad was given a Christmas present by my elder sister, who at that time was a sociology student, student at Sussex University, and she bought him a book called How We Lived Then by Norman Longmate, who was a social historian. And it was a collection of reminiscences of on the home front. I think the first time that there's something been put together like that. It wasn't actually from mass observation, um, but uh, my dad sort of looked at it, sort of wonderingly, and said, but why do I need to read this? I lived through it, which, of course, he hadn't been a young man during the war. I appropriated it, and um, I read it and reread it and reread it. It wasn't um, a heavy sociological book. In fact, I don't think there's any sociology in it at all. What it is, is a conglomeration of details. It's fascinating, especially to a, a child. So, you know, what did you... What was in the Christmas stocking? How did you feed a pet? Where did you go on holiday? And what was it like going to school? It wasn't for children, but the detail of it just just sparked my imagination. And I read it and I reread it and reread it. And so when and and, and it gave me some baseline of knowledge about the Second World War home front, which I sort of added to over the years just out of interest and then I much later on I decided I wanted to write a book about behind the scenes in television and I thought about it and then thought oh, who who would really care frankly about teletypes and then I th- was thinking about the the ridiculous concentration you, you have in studio and about how important it seems and it occurred to me to wonder was it still the same during the war when you know bombs were actually dropping outside the studio did it still take you know 12 people to decide on the the color of the leading man's tie <laughs> and i i started doing some research and yes indeed it did and, and and i thought oh i can write about this this is two things i can write about i can write about behind the scenes and i can write about the home front and that's how i started so in a way it was sort of my era if you like well, I'm so grateful to you um, <laughs> because my mum was in the fire service. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah. you know what it's like with your own parent. You just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it really made it very, very vivid. Oh, thank you. So I'm going to ask about the um, In V for Victory. It's obviously quite an ensemble piece set in the, yeah. set in the boarding house, all these different characters. Um, how do you keep all these characters in, going at the same time? It's quite, it's, it seems like quite an achievement to me. Um Yes, I don't. I had a rough idea of the arc of this book, but but very often when I'm writing, I'm not quite sure what's happening on the other half of the page, let alone what's happening during the rest of the the chapter. But I think I've been writing for long enough now that that a certain amount of structuring seems to go on in the back of my brain. So when I look at the book now, I realise that there's only three. Um, scenes round the boarding house table. There's one right at the beginning. There's one in the middle Christmas Day, and there's one right at the end. So it bal- it balances out. I don't have all those characters all the way through. Certain of those characters are only visible and only talked to around the dining room table in the house. And it's there's only a, a much smaller number of characters who we meet outside that venue. So it's a question of I think. So so we learn more about the characters who get outside it and the characters who are inside the, the boarding house are more one-liners, really. Though I do try to give them a bit, a chance to shine. But, but I always wanted to write a boarding house book. You know, it's a really British thing. The boarding house book is a, is a, is a, is a genre that I love. So I was very happy to do that. But you're so good at making the reader feel in, like, three words how we're meant to feel for that character. Oh, thank you. Uh, 
it's like, such a skill it's not done without is it, is it partly to do with your, your your television experience you think your that you can yeah, you have right. a sense of how these things look yes i think i it's, it's partly that and partly that i um i very much sit inside the characters heads and see what they see and i have no um visual uh, no memory faces at all I never know what any of my I still don't know what any of my characters look like even when I describe them I don't actually have a mental picture of them but I know exactly what they're looking at and I, and I sit and I know what they're thinking and and so it's very much um wanting the reader to see exactly what I'm reading what I'm seeing it's, it's a very controlling way of writing in a way not you know, I don't particularly recommend it, but it's what I do. And I spend a lot of time getting the absolute right combination of words so that they will see what I see. You're very clever with the way you use the dialogue, which actually directs how things work. And I suppose that's partly the television. I do a lot. Yes, I do a lot of... Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day because I was supposed to be giving a talk about it. I don't normally <laughs> analyse my... Oh, oh, is that how I do it? And I do tend to use the dialogue. I use the dialogue for for character and for action. I don't use it for exposition because that's really dull. I mean, it, you know, because we don't sit around as human beings telling each other the plot. No, no, that's right. Uh, I mean, that's what I mean is, is you yeah. use the dialogue not to say, oh, we're outside a red house yeah. now. Yeah. But you use it to, to really give an insight into the characters and how they're thinking. And, and, and so you really do understand the characters. And that's done through... Rather than through telling us that um, he was a clever person or she was this or that, yes. you actually you, you understand what's going on through the dialogue, which I think is, is a really clever aspect of what you do. And it also makes it more fun to write dialogue as well. Yeah. You know, if, if I get I get terribly bored if I realise I'm, I'm going to have to do some exposition in dialogue. It is just unbearable. And often I'll try and twist things so I don't have to. Exposition, as far as I'm concerned, should happen in the prose. It should happen in the, you know... It, in the internal monologues or something like that. Yeah. I love that part of your humour as well that I really enjoy is when often there's the little sections, you know, line spaces between things within a chapter. Yes. And somebody will say something and then the very next start of the next chunk of prose... Oh, yeah, it will be the joke. Yes, yeah, totally punchline. Which yeah. is often the opposite of what the person's just said. I yes. will never do yeah, blah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So-and-so just That's did it. Just set up joke, yeah. set up joke, yeah, I'm exactly. afraid. Once in comedy, no, uh, it is. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot, there's a lot. Of humor in, yeah. in your in your writing, which I think Massive. is one of the things that, that I enjoy most about it, is yeah. that uh, I think a good story is one thing, but told in a, a serious story, but told in a light way, and I think that, that's that's a that's a really important part. And I suppose that comes from your 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 stand up, your expert in humour. I don't. Uh, think I, well, think. I think I mean the funny thing is that I mean most people I know in comedy went into comedy. You don't you don't tend to drift into comedy. You go into comedy because you're obsessed with comedy, and you know like. You know, some of my first memories are re- delighting in books that made me laugh. And, you know, I was one of these people who knew all the scripts of Forty Towers off by heart. And then when I was at university, I wrote sketches. And, and that's how I ended up in comedy, because I loved it. So when I was in comedy, that helped refine that that light. But it was always in me. It was always something that I think is important. And funny lines in books stayed in my head right from when I was a little girl. So I had a sort of, um, you know... a a playbook in my head of what a funny line should be like, you know, reading Molesworth or yeah, it? absolutely. It's a musicality that's that's difficult to get, but when you get it, it's very satisfying, you know. Mm. And I think, I think, and again, I'm going to say nothing about one of the, the book, Crooked Heart. Mm. I felt that that was a wonderful antidote to um, the sort of sentimental, stiff upper lip vision yeah. we have of, yeah. of bl- the Blitz and you know 
call blimey gov you know you it, it was it was absolutely not that at all because it, it was the kind of slightly seedier side of, yes. of what was going on and and people actually making money out of stuff and it was it, that's what happened i mean it's not it wasn't all stiff upper lip it and, wasn't uh, i mean the, the, the human nature doesn't really change so you know during the war they were they were tremendously brave people they were there was fantastic, you know, uh, self-sacrifice, and and but they're also spivs and thieves and and crooks and 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 a fair amount of petty crime, and it was interesting examining examining that because it was a whole different method of research as well. But so you know, if you're if you're trying to research the making of a film during the Second World War, there are ten tons of things you can read, and I by God, I read most of them, but there's so much you're wading thigh deep in research. You try to find out what lives of petty criminals in a provincial town were like well you know they weren't doing mass observation diaries you know they weren't (laughs) they're not they're not interviewed by the bbc for documentaries and 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 my way into that was um the local the st albans local paper which i love so much the st albans and hertfordshire Hertfordshire advertiser i think it is and um it came out it was a once a week paper so there wasn't too much there was always quite a lot of meaty stuff in it and that was fantastic. And that was, you know, list, attend, attendees at Masonic dinners, cheek by jowl with lists of people defaulting on the rates, with, with you know, things about a, a woman who'd uh, taken on six evacuees and even though they'd all gone back to London two months later, was still claiming the money for them a year later. I mean, you know, there was so much stuff. And and the little crimes mentioned in the book are all really you know, somebody breaking into White Lodge and stealing two bananas and a carriage clock. I mean, if something that is that good, I just lift it, you know. <laughs> listeners, juxtaposition. Have you ever read the Todmorden Gazette? I haven't. No, listen, you've got to read oh, the Todmorden oh, Gazette. Oh, what's that? What I, is it? Well, it's a local newspaper. Oh, oh, I see. Um, but it's honestly, I will say no more. Oh, really? I'm, I'm, deep in, um, I'm deep in the the, uh, the Aylesbury Gazette at the moment for something okay. else. Yeah, okay. so. Very good. Uh, one, one question that I wanted to ask some personal questions what's going to happen next to Noel is it, are we going to have another book or is, or is that it is that's no... it I think people oh. keep asking me because I, I do I'm very fond of the ending you know it's it's very mm, it's uplifting perfect. and it's looking up and out and if I brought them back I would have to invent some jeopardy for them they've they've got through their jeopardy and they've mm. they've solved the way they live and the thought of actually inventing something new I might change my mind well, I mean, he's only he's only fifteen or something. He's only fifteen. Yeah, we could jump forward a couple of decades so and um, and have him as a have him sort of an early middle age, couldn't you? And uh, Noel well. is perfectly formed, <laughs> and the trilogy is perfectly formed. <laughs> you, no, there's, always, there's always room for more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, what is next? Uh, well, I have started. I, well, I finished a children's book during lockdown. Eventually, oh my god, that was so hard writing. I did eventually finish it, so I've got a children's book coming out next year. And what's that? It's called Wished, Wished, um, which is quite difficult to say. It's my usual eight to twelve-year-old uh, uh, audience. And then um, I've just started writing another adult book um, set post-war. It's all I will say about it. But it's quite. I'm finding it quite hard because. Setting something during the war, you've got natural drama built in. You know, if something if something gets a bit slow, you can always drop a bomb on them, can't you? <laughs> and, and you do, and I do, and I can't. I can't in this. So it has, it's a whole different. Rhythm. So how post post war is it? Is it fifties uh, rationing? Or no, it's it's it's. Oh, I shouldn't be saying oh, this. So don't then. Don't. Uh, that's right. Not very. 
Lisa, what I really like is there was a little bit of the book that I was going to read, but it would be fantastic if you would actually read it. Um, Thank you so much. (laughs) And I'm going to say why I love it so much afterwards. But I'm going to say one of my favourite characters, Noel, as we've discussed, is wonderful and a star and we love him. Um, But I love Jepson, um, one of the boarding house people. Yes, he's a very gentle soul, isn't he? He's just lovely. Yeah. so it's a bit about that. It's about the Home Guard Parade. Oh, yes. This is sort of internal monologue by Jepson, who is a boarding house a regular. And he is he's a First World War veteran who lost an ear during the First World War. Um, and he's currently at the drill hall at some ghastly Methodist entertainment. And he's looking around the drill mm. hall. The place was dreadfully familiar to him from his four years of home guard parades, those interminable evenings of shuffle and stamp, of repetitious tasks and tedious duties, of winter rain on the windows and the pervasive smell of damp surge, of stifling summer nights when all one wanted to do was sit in a hillside with a beer. Earlier in the war there had seemed some point to it. During the night blitz, Jepson and other veterans from his platoon had been deployed on the crew of an anti-aircraft gun, thunderously loosing 28-pounders against the bombers. But during the years that that had followed, as the threat of invasion receded, thrice-weekly attendants at the drill hall had become yet another petty home-front penance to be endured, and none of them had been sorry when the guard was officially stood down in the autumn. Jepson had reported for the the North London Press on the final mass parade. 7,000 men selected from all over the country, boots shining, music playing, the king taking the salute. There had been one final absurd twist when the Irish Guards band had played the march past at a fearful lick, too rapid for some of the older members who had nevertheless managed to keep up, turning variously grey or pink according to the condition of their hearts. Some of the watchers had laughed and Jepson had had to turn away pierced by the derision. They were laughing at men who night after night, year after year, had come home after long shifts and then wearily changed into khaki before setting out again, unpaid, unlauded. And he remembered Della pressing a hand to her smiling mouth after seeing him in his home guard uniform for the first time. Sorry, she said, I know you can't help your ear, but yet that helmet does look silly all tipped down to one side. It was painful now to think that he'd smiled back. That was it. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And uh, you, it was mo- we're all a tribute big... to my granddad actually, who was um, who was a foreman, roads foreman. And my mum used to describe him coming back all sort of weary after a day on the roads and then having to put on his bloody home guard uniform and go out again. You know, and so tired and it oh. seems so pointless. You know. Well, what no. um, you at home won't see. We were actually being polite and not laughing out loud. <laughs> mm. But Lisa, why I got you to be that? One of the things I absolutely love is where you don't tell us what to think you make (laughs) us do it so when I read that bit I actually even read it out to Rich my husband um, and you find that we're laughing we're actually doing the laughing as everybody would have done and then you have the Oh, blimey moment afterwards of thinking, God, how could I have done that? I even know that Jepson doesn't have an ear and I love him for his shyness and so on. How could I do it? And I love being tricked into it almost. Well, that just brings us to the last bit, which is we ask all our authors when they come on, uh, what one book would you take to a desert island? I did have a think about this, you warned me. (laughs) And I couldn't, I couldn't, I actually thought, okay, it could be one of two, in fact, which is cheating, I know. But um, it could be Middlemarch because there's so much in it and it's so wonderful and so extraordinary and their palette is so broad and so clever and oh, it's marvellous. Or it could be something 
that I have read many times already and loved because it's a million stories and one which is The Shipping News by Annie Prue. Oh, yes. Which is a book that I adore and has got so many stories in it that you get to the end of it and you still can't remember all of them so that each rereading gives you, gives you, you know, different different stories. My mum used to read it once a year, so when I reread it, I always think it's like having a conversation with my mum, so it feels, oh. you know, it feels personal. Yeah, you know? that's lovely. Yeah. That's why we love that question. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I, I, I must say, I, I read Shipping News 20, 20 yeah, years ago. Yeah, whenever it came ago. out, yeah. Um, so maybe it's time for a reread. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I've never read Middlemarch, which is something that I always... I, oh, uh, boy. I, I know I, it's, it's one of those books I need to read. And my wife tells me it's it's the it's the best book in the English language, and I yeah. and I must read it. It's probably why you haven't read I it. I think uh, I don't mean because of your wife, but I mean because everybody must be saying. It took that. me about no, no, three true. goes to get through the first three chapters. Yeah. I have to say, once you once you're over that little hump, I don't think it's a problem. Thank you very much, Lisa, for coming in today. It's been really fascinating talking to you and hearing so much about about your writing and uh, for answering our rather uh, poor questions. Uh, Ever so so humble. We've got all Dickensian now. No, they weren't that pathetic. (laughs) Listen, honestly. You've had worse. It's so rare for me to actually have a hero in, so it's just been a joy. Thank you. My pleasure. Petersfield's Shine Radio. Okay, well, what's up and coming in the next month? I've, I've chosen four books, all by... Authors with local connections, which I think is quite interesting. So, first of all, I've got The Aristocracy of Talent by Adrian Woolridge. Now, Adrian is a writer on The Economist and a uh, an incredibly um, knowledgeable man. Um, this is a book about meritocracy. It's the revolutionary idea, because it was revolutionary at the time, that people should be judged on their talents, not their birth or who their parents were. Um, it's not even a new idea. It's an old idea. Plato talks about about it, um, but it only really came into into the UK in probably about the nineteenth century. So what he's looking at is how it came about, what it's what is meant, um, whether it still works, and how to make it work properly uh, right now. So lots of lots of interesting ideas in there. Uh, it's already had some some fantastic reviews have come through on it. So uh, and I've I've been dipping into it and it, it's reads really well is he so. suggesting it as the new normal should we look back at that post-pandemic no i think he's saying that there are ways we can improve our meritocracy which is which has become what he calls a sort of plutocracy it's about it's um it's about money really if you if you're if you're wealthy uh you rather than um pass on your position which it used to happen if you're an aristocrat you know your your dukedom or whatever it might be or your or your uh, office um but by by uh, spending lots of money on education, by by spending lots of using lots of connections, we can ensure that if you're wealthy, your children will almost certainly be wealthy as well. Mm. So that's all, and will right. achieve. So there's not really a meritocracy. People are unable to 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 come up like yeah. perhaps they did for a short period in in this century, post-war period. You know, there was a, a flourishing of talents. You know, people like um, Melvin Bragg. You could you could argue people like him. You know, came through. Uh, the grammar school the education top, and reach the top of the mm-hmm. top of the pile, um, and that's not happening as much now. And right. he's saying what we need to do to change that. So Great. that's a, Great. that's the first book. Um, the second book is the Dictator's Muse by mm. Nigel Farndale. Um, this is a novel. It's his third, I think, 
It looks non-fiction. Looking yes, well, it is actually it's mainly about uh, a real character, Leni Riefenstahl, uh, the brilliant but flawed oh, yes. filmmaker of Nazi Germany. Uh, it's partly about the Berlin Olympics in 1936, and it's partly about British fascism, um, how they all three of those things, concepts come together. And uh, Leni is a real character, but the re- most of the rest of the characters are not real, although Oswald Mosey just put in a brief cameo. Black shorts. Um, but uh, he's a terrific writer, great pace. He wrote um, The Blasphemer, The Road Between Us. Um, so, yeah, definitely mm. one, to, one to watch out for. That's coming out later this month. The third book is Unbreak Your Heart by Katie Marsh. Um, this features seven-year-old Jake, who, is a, who has HLHS, which is a, a very serious heart condition, which requires constant medical, medical interventions to keep him alive. He's determined not to leave his single dad, Simon, alone. And his mission is to find him someone to love. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a romantic story, really. Uh, strong characters, it's well plotted, um, and several boxes of Kleenex are required with Ooh. this book. But uh, it's, a, it's a cracking read, actually. The fourth book I was going to talk about is Outbreak by Frank Gardner. Now his, is that the Frank Gardner? The Frank Gardner. So both his parents uh, used to live locally. They, they, they're not with us anymore, but uh, basically live in Peacefield. And um, Frank used to come in to my bookshop occasionally. Yeah. Um, but he, he writes good thrillers, actually, uh, Frank. And it's, um, this one's called Outbreak. And it's about a very nasty outbreak of some kind of plague type thing in the Arctic, which works its way into Oh, I have to read works that. Its way into the, into can the I world. borrow that? You can. Thank you. He, he's got a character called Luke Carlton, who's his go-to hero, who is an ex-MI6 character. Um, but that's, so that's our fourth local book. Thank you. That's wonderful. Well done, you. Well, Tim, my backlisted choice this month is almost certain to be in Petersfield Bookshop, the other one, um, Anne Hughes' Her Book in the Folio Society edition, 1981. Now, the reason why I'm specifying the edition is that we haven't really discussed the beauty of some books. We've, you know, we've referenced it slightly with some, but um, I, in the 80s, collected quite a lot of folio editions just because I absolutely loved the covers and so on. They are beautiful. They're real works of art, actually, folio editions. Um, And I was less keen on the the wood prints that they mostly did the illustrations. That's just a personal thing. I, I don't like them very much. But I read this when I first got it in 1981 and I'd never really gone back to it. And I just sort of... I mentioned to Lissa earlier when we were outside having our cup of tea and flapjack, our book group in Sheet, I said, nothing must be longer than novella. So I was actually looking at this for that. And I thought I'd want to give it another whirl. Now, what I hadn't really taken in, or if I had, I'd forgotten, is that we don't really know whether this is a fake. Um, So what it is, is allegedly an 18th century farmer's wife her diary, her jottings, her recipes. It's got all the sort of ye olde worldy misspellings and so on that may be genuine, may not be genuine. Um, but what was interesting, and Lissa remembered this, she said there was the most brilliant BBC production, which there was. And this introduction is by Michael Croucher, who actually did the adaptation 
for the Beeb. And I, th- I think that was around um, the late 70s or early 80s. Before my time, I think. I know, yeah. I will be. Yeah, you never, <laughs> ever miss the chance to rub that in. Um, but I, I do just love it because um, I don't care, really, whether it's genuine or not. They would love to be able to find a copy of the actual diary. But a woman, I'm not going to go through the whole provenance because that would be tedious. But how it sort of came to general public concern was it was serialised in Farmers Weekly in 1938, which is how Lissa had also come across it. So again, when we were chatting, she knew because of all her World War II research about Farmers Weekly and so on. And what had actually happened was either this diary was given to an American serviceman who was stationed with the woman who serialised it for um, Farmers Weekly and her daughter came up with um, this for Michael Croucher and just sort of said you could perhaps do something like this and there's also a, a missing necklace as well but that's been sold so I love the mystery within a mystery I'm just honestly they're all so short but I've got things like bad prices for wool after tea we to the yards me to tell old Joe and Jim to do the feeding me having my lady to visit she did speak very pretty to them and did ask how they all did and to give them a penny piece, at which they did bless her greatly. Then she home after saying she will come again soon and me to tell John many kind messages. Later he home and very grumpy, the sheep's wool making only ninepence the bag, which he says will not pay him his trouble. He did grumble at his supper. I did tell him off my lady's visit and her kind messages and did give him some of the brandy, at which he did cheer up. And was better pleased. So I think, you know, plus change there. And the other one, which I really particularly... Oh, there's disturbances in the larder and a, a mystery and so on. So this is October the 3rd. I'm not doing all the oldie-weldie pronunciation. This is just really weirdly spelt. So. I did have a great fright in the night. Awakening suddenly, I did hear a queer noise downstairs and did set up in my bed to hearken. It getting louder, I did creep to Sarah's room, being very frightened for the noise still going on. She roused we to the top of the stairs to hark once more. Then Sarah says to me to stop here while she goes to see what to do. But I say no, so we down into the passage, Sarah holding the taper and to the kitchen, where we did rouse Carter's wife, who did now also hear the noise. Then she saying it be coming from the larder and tells us to stand by. She off with the great iron poker to see what's ado, we with her. She did throw the door open quick and we did see the window open and a man stuck therein. He not able to go one way or t'other. At which Sarah, holding the taper aloft, Carter's wife, did belabour him with the poker right valiantly about his shoulders and he cursing and trying hard to get away, but he being tight stuck, he could not. Then the Carter's wife did cry out, It be Tim Prue! And I venturing near did see it was, so I did ask him, Why did he do this? And he did say, Him out! and he will tell all about it. So Carter's wife away outside to pull at his legs while me and Sarah do push him hard. He do go off the window with a great lump on his chin, which did make him yoop. I fear me Carter's wife did help it on with a will. Then she holding him in the kitchen, me got him by over my fright by now, did speak sharp at him to say why he's so foolish. And he did say that he, being in the crown earlier, did make a bet with Carter's lad to get in the house and take out some victuals. And the other one's quite rude. 
that I was going to read out, but I won't. Um, but Sarah is quite a naughty that piece of work. after the watershed. Yes, absolutely, yes. It is. But Sarah goes out to meet um, a boyfriend in the hayloft. I've never come across this, uh, this, this book or anything, anything to do with it. It's all, it's all, it's all new to me. It's good. Um, but I urge you to read Middlemarch before you read Anne Hughes, her book. Though this is much shorter, obviously, as you say. Well, here we are, Tim. Um, we haven't managed to um, fix up an author yet at this point of recording that we can say definitely to you out there who will be coming. But I think we should try one with these several local authors that you... Indeed, indeed. We'll have, we'll have, we'll have ask, an ask around. Yeah, that would be really good and get sorted. Um, so if you have any comments or questions, email us at team at shineradio.uk. And if you would like to catch up with any of our Talking Books podcasts, you can sub- subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's so, it for this month. So thank you, Susie. Thank you, Tim. See you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Produced by John Wellsman. With Petersfield's Shine Radio. Rise and shine. Whatever local information comes in, you'll be the very first to know. You'll feel those ribs expand. Okay, and then, I'm doing it, I'm doing are it. Are you doing it? Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome back to Rise and Shine. You're with Alan Cross this morning. What could be better? Good morning, it's good to be with you. I'm Harrison RB. It's the brighter way to start your day in the Petersphere. As long as you're breathing, <laughs> you're doing okay. <laughs> I'm so, with you, Vicky. <laughs> Rise and Shine, weekday mornings from 6, with Petersfield's Shine Radio. I think that's lovely.